Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I spoke with Dr. David Luke. David is Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Greenwich. His research focuses are into transpersonal experiences, anomalous phenomena, and altered states of consciousness, especially via psychedelics. David is a prolific and important scientific author and has published more than 100 academic papers in the area of psychedelics, including 10 books. His most recent book is Psychedelic Mysteries of the Feminine, and as always, links will be provided into his work in the show notes and the associated blog post. Just go to mindmanifestpodcast.com for more info. Dave is co-founder and current chair of Breaking Convention, Europe's largest interdisciplinary conference on psychedelic science and culture. But interestingly, he straddles two very different worlds. He operates within the conventional academy of the social sciences, but he also has a deep interest in esoterica and parapsychology and directs the Ecology, Cosmos and Consciousness Salon as well as conducting field experiments with DMT and clinical research with LST. I would still describe myself as a philosophical materialist, but as Stephen Fry says, one must hold one's views lightly. And I find hyper-materialists, the type of people who would completely dismiss any of David's work, I just find hyper-materialists like any other extremist thinkers, both intellectually tedious and ideologically dangerous. And it was in this spirit I wanted to talk to David, I want to have good faith conversations in person with nice people who I might disagree with. The goal is to see if they can teach me something I don't know, and perhaps vice versa. We didn't really get into the weeds of parapsychology for several reasons. Number one, I just had very limited time with David. That's my doing, not his, as I had to rush off from London to Bristol to attend another event. But just think of this as an introductory chat, and I'm sure we'll sit down again. Second, I need to be a bit more knowledgeable on the actual claims within the field of parapsychology. And thirdly, I'm just not a sociopath. I always seek to find common ground on my first meeting with someone before just reflexively disagreeing with them. And the good news is, I feel we did this. Having consumed a good deal of David's content and now speaking to him, I think we share a similar frustration in a generic sense with a scientific tendency in psychological research to not just dismiss outlier findings, but to go further than this, to go too far, to repudiate them. This leads to a regression to the mean of both scientific innovation and applied outcomes, and it is scientifically lazy. It abdicates the responsibility to explain findings which simply do not fit inside your neat little paradigm. So let's all keep an open mind without letting our brains fall out. I think it is very healthy for David and researchers like him to make extraordinary claims, and I feel it is appropriate for interlocutors like me to demand extraordinary evidence. This back and forth should proceed with mirth, goodwill, and a fundamental respect that the person you're talking to might know something you don't. I really enjoy David's company. I get the feeling he takes what he does very seriously whilst not taking himself too seriously at all, and that's the way it should be. And the quality of the conversation was greatly aided by Rice Krispie buns provided by my niece Aoife, so thanks Aoife for the catering. So I'll see you on the other side. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I am joined 
by David Luke, and we are back in the bowels of uh, break, uh, the of Greenwich University after the Breaking Convention Conference about a month and a half ago. Uh, David has very kindly nipped away from his day of work to come and chat to us. So thanks very much, David, and I really Cheers appreciate on. it. Um, so we've been chatting a bit off mic about what we could talk about, and there's as per usual, an infinite number of things that we can talk about. But I wanted to jump into your most recent, I suppose, ecological bit of research uh, with the non-echoic chamber. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know, what is a non-echoic chamber? How does, could you describe it to me? Yeah, so uh, this is a sealed container chamber whereby not only is there no kind of sensory leakage, auditory leakage coming in from the outside, it's, it's soundproof, but it's it's designed as such that on the inside, it sucks up all the, the sound as well. So it's kind of, it, the whole thing's lined floor to ceiling walls with these kind of big sponge pyramids, hmm. uh, which, you know, actually suck all the timber out of the air. It's, it's soundproof from the outside, but it also actually has negative decibels uh, in terms of its kind of sound volume. And what does... What would someone and is the floor suspended? Yeah, the whole thing is actually suspended, and ah. then there's a there's a grill over the floor. So you you know because it's got these um, big sponge pyramids, oh. you have to kind of a, a grill over that so you can you're not squashing these sponges. Because I think a lot of people would imagine, oh, I, I've been in something like that, but I would imagine viscerally it's just like next level to anything that you could replicate. Would that be? Yeah, it's it's uh, there is no natural uh, versions of of an anechoic chamber, particularly where it's it's less than kind of zero sound, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that, but it's also the we tested it. There's not a single photon of light in there either, so it's kind of double shielded for light emission. So it's it's ex- just insanely quiet, and it's pitch black. You know, mm. like quite literally. You, me- you mentioned there's no like sort of human analog so to speak but there is a culture of like an anthropological culture of uh everyone knows about you know people going off in sort of hermitude but there's a there's a, another culture of uh, international culture worldwide culture of people actually doing something similar to this from a shamanistic perspective is that correct is it? yeah absolutely i mean it's become a bit of a thing now as well dark retreats yeah but the the tradition is it probably quite ancient i mean for instance the uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they do 49-day retreats uh, in darkness. Jesus. So no, not necessarily complete silence, but it'd be pretty quiet too. And actually, but the Kogi Indians probably beat them because they do a divination for people born in the village, in the community. And if it's auspicious, they'll be trained to become a shaman and they'll spend the first nine years of their life in a, in a cave with no uh, external light. And then they do another divination if it's auspicious again they keep them in there till they're 18 if you uh, need contact details for your <laughs> screaming child just contact david well i'll be providing all his socials he can sort that out for you I, that is insane is that still happening uh, as far as we know yeah but yeah. don't tell social services <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. um but yeah so there's precedent there's human yeah. precedent but there's 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 an inclination to do these types of things culturally yeah. um and so the inception of this piece of research was a little bit different, I would imagine, to most you know proposals. You collaborated with uh, an artist, mm-hmm. an installation artist. Can you tell me how that like 
the inception of the this piece of work? Yeah, so it came about from a guy called Haroon Mirza, who's a you know pretty well acclaimed artist in the UK, and he works a lot with sound and vision. But uh, he was very much into the idea of DMT, yeah, and you know the theory that maybe DMT is producing the pineal gland, and he'd heard about the kogis, and there's there are some kind of like you know pop neuroscientific discussions that you know maybe darkness uh leads to um strange behavior of, of the of the mel- of the pineal gland is production of melatonin and if dmt is made in the pineal gland then maybe that also goes into overproduction the theory being that as much as your pineal gland makes serotonin in the day it might make uh dmt at night so if you put someone in a dark chamber you're overproducing dmt so it's like a hunt for a biochemical cascade that leads to this endogenous yeah. Production yeah. to sort of verify Strassman's theory is that pretty much that that's pretty much it. But it, yeah. as an artist, he can get away with calling it, you know, chamber for endogenous DMT. You know, I think that's, I mean, great. I mean, even like you've mentioned, we were talking off air about where people fit in terms of on the dimensionality between super out there and like hyper materialist. I mean, any reasonable scientist understands that there's there's an infinite amount of stuff that isn't known, and art has a perfectly legitimate arm of exploring that in a way that. Yeah. You know, people who have to keep tenure just couldn't couldn't get away with. You know, so That's quite right. Yeah. <laughs> Although in my case, I'm still amazed I've got a job still. I, so. Yeah. Well, that's um, I think that's a bit of uh, skill as well. Don't you know, give yourself a bit of credit. And there's probably plenty that have done it before and uh, didn't walk the tightrope just quite so well. Um, so you set this up where it was m- like in a museum. I understand. Is that like, it was in was a, an art gallery. An yeah. art gallery. Sorry, and you had about. 50 odd people came through because we can get into all the, the psychometrics but I'm just curious about how you got from someone wandering into an art gallery to, be, to being <laughs> a negative <laughs> negative decibels how did how does was that temp- how does that look like? Uh, so people would uh, come and see the exhibition. I think Erin's also got a bit of a following. So, ah, right. um, you know, a lot of his friends also took part. But there were a lot of people who just literally wandered into the gallery and they were like invited to to sit in the chamber. The stipulation was that they had to sit in there for two hours. Jesus. So uh, there was a quite a few, you know, supposed randoms came in and, and did that and a, a lot of people who'd, who'd uh, also wanted to go in and do mm-hmm. it. Um, um, but yeah, that was uh, and quite how, convenient. Did you, um, how did you go with getting ethical approval for this? And we're going to come on to some of mm. the findings, which, you know, retrospectively, if I change the, the state of things, what was what was your procedure like to get and this sort of off the ground to get? Yeah, I mean, it's fairly standard because I've been doing lots of research with altered states of right. all kinds, uh, and I've been branching out as well. So uh, it's it's not too dissimilar to a lot of the work I do sure. do. I mean, you just have to make sure that you, you know you look after the safety and well being of the of participants first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So they they were able to get out at any yeah. point just by we, we kind of had an audio link so we could mm-hmm. hear anything they were saying we were going to give them a panic button but uh we've discovered that actually some of the early research where you give people <laughs> panic buttons uh they actually had you know more, an expectancy for, yeah for that, high yeah. anxiety totally. about being in there there was like a big kind of priming effect so we just said like if you want to get out just say we're listening and we'll let you out so it's all fairly safe and and people have you know full consent and they can stop at any time, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think that's interesting to, to note, like the you know just just how malleable the, the expectancy can be in either you know direction, whether positive, negative, or I don't even really like that binary distinction. Mm-hmm. But that um, I think that's good news for yeah. us because we can really 
tweak things and impact upon the phenomenological occurrence and there and you would expect then downstream the outcome yeah um so to jump into a few of the areas where i'm interested in this because um from chatting to torsten passing and a few other people having people maybe well versed both cl- the clinic clinicians and the participants in altered states of consciousness per se I am on board with. I think it's mm-hmm. a good idea to broaden the scope a little bit. I just not just be very myopic about psychedelia. Um, so I understand that you did a few psychometric tests and different measures that are not identical but similar to the ones that would be done at say Johns Hopkins and things. So maybe just yeah. if you could unpack the the sort of pre pre experience questionnaires. Yes. So uh, we were looking at. Uh, some standard measures we use in psychedelic research. I mean, one of the most robust personality variables we use in psychology that predicts people's depth of alt state in, an, in the psychedelics is what's called absorption. So that's like the tendency for people to kind of get lost in films or books mm-hmm. or have those states where that you know that they may not even hear somebody calling their name whilst they're watching a film because they're just so engrossed in it. So people who have deeper states of this trait of absorption. Um, tend to have much more intense psychedelic experiences mm. when we look at them with our post measure, our acute measure of altered states, right? So we looked at that and there was another thing we've been exploring which is quite novel and isn't known to psychedelic research is temporal lobe lobability. So people have symptoms that look like, uh, if they were full-blown, might be evidence of uh, epilepsy, but these are kind of strange kind of cognitive slips like time slips or deja vu or strange smells which may be kind of normal and not indicative of full-blown epilepsy, but they also tend to predict some experiences in old states. I'm just thinking, would that sort of correlate with that experience that full-blown epileptics get of the aura before they experience a seizure? Is that is that sort of a... Yeah, well, it might well do, yeah. I mean, so, uh, certainly like full-blown epilepsy, you get a lot of kind of, you know, it's a full outward state, isn't it, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. uh, a seizure is an outward state, right? And so you get all the... You get all the accoutrement, all the psychedelic yeah. goodies. But you get that, like, you get people reporting, like, 15, 20 minutes before the seizure comes on, this type of lability and experiencing, yeah, you know, there's, like, an aura that comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder, yeah. does that correlate, do you think, with uh, that temporal lobability? So, quite probably, yeah. So, yeah. we're just kind of looking at normal, non-pathological symptoms uh, that are kind of anomalous symptoms that people may have, you know. You know, people without, you know, they're, they're, it's a dimensionality, they're walking around with stuff like this, but they wouldn't exactly, necessarily yeah. be classified in any of the very overzealous DSMs, exactly. ICDs. Um, how would someone, like, how does somebody have temporal lobe lobility? What are the sort of things that would cause that that we know of? Well, yeah, I don't really know exactly, but uh, presumably, I mean, just looking at it as, as symptomology, right? Uh, so that if you think of it, le- epilepsy on, on a kind of continuum, so you're on one end of the scale, we've got people who are very prone to having seizures, and the other end of the scale, you've got people who are not very prone to having seizures. And so everybody fits somewhere along that mm-hmm. continuum. And you know that some people just will exhibit more of the symptoms. You know, the more of the symptoms you have, the much more likely you are actually have the epilepsy. But epilepsy mm-hmm. really is a, a, a state of uh, too much coherence between kind of like uh, activity of the different neurons, different parts of your brain, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and that leads to a, seri- uh, a seizure or you know, mm. your 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 neurons are kind of firing synchronously in, mm. in resonance and those two th- things 
I suppose, separate because the fantasy proneness is overlaps, I would imagine, quite a bit with the absorption. You know, it's hard to it deal does, any yeah. of those two things. So let's just call it that absorption, but I'm mm-hmm. referring to the, that, you know, off of the fairies construct, let's yeah. say, versus the temporal lobability. What did those things predict for in terms of outcomes with people? Uh, I can't remember the exact results, but I, I mean, absorption is pretty good in predicting most of the features of an altered state, mm-hmm. uh, such as kind of bliss, uh, spiritual experience, uh, iconic uh, elementary imagery, yeah. you know, like so seeing kind of geometric patterns and all the rest of it. Uh, I think we also found, so, you know, absorption predicts most of those usual features as they do for psychedelics and in the dark room, but we found that temporal lobability picked up on a few things which didn't show up with the uh, absorption. So things like the sense of presence uh, in the room in particular and and some of the visual phenomena as well. Before I left the house, I was reading uh, the psychedelicacies, which you can... Um, actually, that the psychedelicacies was a book that was given to all the delegates after the conference, and there's like little snippets of exact delicacies of psychedelic research. And David's got one in there about this particular study. So I was reading through that this morning, and my, my sister's a wee bit claustrophobic, so just to scare her, because that's <laughs> my job as a sibling, I just explained to her the little section about the sentient, the, 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 the awareness. Sentences, the, yeah. yeah, yeah, she was shitting herself, so um, <laughs> job well done. So if, <laughs> could you give me a little bit of a, an overview of what that sentience that was experienced by, I think, it was quite high. It was like 10%. Yeah, about 10%, yeah. yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Um, it's interesting because that... The, so in, in the measures we have, there may be some slight mention of sense presence in there, but it wasn't something we were specifically looking at. But in the people's actual reports, mm-hmm. they would kind of... Uh, they would just kind of give a verbal report, actually a written report, of their experience. We found that quite a lot of people talked about feeling like they weren't alone in this totally pitch black sound, mm-hmm. soundproof room uh they felt there was a sense presence uh, nice presence well that was the thing no <laughs> no like uh like nine out of ten of them said it was not a happy presence you know they were like yeah. they felt kind of it was uh yeah somewhat uh ominous yeah. uh which was quite interesting so that was kind of very consistent right yeah. um but we didn't yeah, uh, and, it, and we thought that might be related to sleep paralysis because one of the mm-hmm. features, that, I don't know if you know the phenomena of sleep paralysis, is that people have this experience where they're somewhere between waking and sleeping and they feel like they're paralysed and often you get this sense of uh, ominous sense of a presence in the room. Uh, in some cases, it feels like it's sitting on your chest and mm-hmm. kind of uh, stopping you breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's quite a common phenomenon. You know, a good proportion of the population will have that experience at some point in their life. But uh, So we figured, well, is it related to that? We didn't. We found that it, the people who had the sense presence wasn't in any way related to how sleepy they said they were, or whether or not they thought they'd fallen asleep. Uh, so it seemed to be a kind of waking phenomena, in no way related to sleep paralysis, but was in some way related to temporal lobe liability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there'd be. It's we understand this is like a piece of ecological research, and that's I love that exploring edge. Give me your most, you can speculate as much as you want, give me your most square, conventional, uh, exp- like speculative explanation for what that was, and then what's your most out there one for that? Because you did find a, you know, a correlate in terms of a questionnaire mm-hmm. picked up, a legitimate sort of, uh, but not pathology, but a series of things, and it predicted mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a quite a, a profound phenomenological experience. So what would be your like straight down the middle explanation on your 
out there explanation for that. Yeah, interesting. I mean, um, so we did this similar experiment, actually, weirdly, as another art project about 10 years ago at the Royal uh, College of Art. And uh, it was in a supposedly haunted room. Right. And we had a similar thing again. We had about 10% of the people. It was totally dark. We had like blackout blinds mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. It wasn't anechoic, but it was dark, dark room. Uh, <laughs> supposedly haunted. And about 10% of people said they had hallucinations or a sense of presence of something in there with them. So this is something that, you know, a small subsection of, of the population will have if left alone in a dark room, particularly if they're told it's haunted, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, what the mechanism may be, we don't necessarily know. It does seem to be related to temporal lobe lability, which means you you have a proneness to having hallucinatory-like experiences, right? So, so that's kind of how we might... That's usually where the explanation with starts. An anthrop- with an anthropomorphic quality a lot yeah. of times, to be fair. You yeah, know? often, yeah. But we were often kind of primed to see kind of people yes, and things. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Uh, sense people and it was interesting so we yeah. asked people what did they actually see and the, the, there was no consistency you know sometimes it's a little old man sometimes it was an old woman or some there were different kind of periods of history so we were trying to see if people could pick up on the actual story that was supposedly around this sure. kind of haunting but the no, narrative of the really narrative yeah. but everyone had a different story yeah. right um <clears throat> but people all had a sense of there being a person in there it wasn't humans. It wasn't, sorry, it was It was human. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like animals or That's monsters. That's the snippet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, oops. So that, you know, the, the explanation would be, oh, so there's a subset of people who have a tendency more likely to have hallucinatory experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, most psychology would, would kind of draw the line at an explanation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, it's a hallucination. People are prone to hallucinations. But hallucinations is like a bit of a wastebasket term for... Yeah. Uh, perceptual experiences which are don't fit with consensus reality right sure. uh, uh, and so I think we're, we kind of behooves us to unpack those experiences a bit more and and say well what do we mean when we say hallucination mm-hmm. and that's where you can get into some more interesting uh, kind of uh, theorizing about the nature of uh, so-called hallucinations for instance I've had uh, shared hallucinations you know so it's one thing to say that you've kind of got your own perceptual misjudgment when you're in an altered state but if like uh different people all see the same thing that's when it starts to get a bit more kind of curious like ontologically what's Mm -hmm. so what's the nature of of that those kind of events uh so for instance when i was uh on a field trip in brazil uh with a bunch of people from a conference and see these local indians and they spiked us all with detura um which is really potent psychedelic, which gives you true hallucinations. Um, but in the morning afterwards, when we, we none of us knew what was going on, Jesus, right? Yeah. And in the morning afterwards, we were all trying to figure out what had happened the night before. And a couple of my ex ex students had, had begged me to take them. They were like, uh, "Oh, did you see the little man running around the Indians' hut?" And I was like, "What? No." He's like, "You both saw him." He's like, "What did he look like?" Oh, he's a little guy, you know, about you know half the size of a adult and he had these big dark almond eyes and he, you know it looked like a wizened old face like he was 300 years old and i was like what and then they showed me a little she'd drawn done a drawing of it one of the students i was like you what you both saw that and then i looked at it and i went oh my god i saw a woman just like that on the minibus going mm-hmm. back you know because uh, it gives you amnesia as well <laughs> so you know here we have this kind of like encounter experience with something that 
more than one person encountered mm -hmm. independently on the same in the same state of consciousness mm -hmm. at the same time so that starts getting a bit weirder right that's the far out kind of is there in some way in which these weird little people with arm shaped eyes and old wizened faces are somehow independently real mm -hmm. uh I wouldn't say we have enough evidence to say that, but it's you can at least explore the idea. One of the, I would imagine that one of the big bright lines in the sand at the minute, when we're talking about anything along these lines, is do do you, th you know, and everyone gets asked this sort of like ping pong back and forth. Yeah, do yeah. you believe that consciousness exists outside of the brain? And there's a spectrum of people seems to be. You know, there's some people who are very materialist who still make a claim for, say, panpsychism, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's people who believe, you know, all sorts of things. I'm not, I'm just unencumbered by knowledge at this stage <laughs> of any of these fields. So I'm, I'm more than willing to hear people out. And I don't know if that question is too reductive or I haven't like, nailed it. But if I were to ask you, do you think there is, a, there is evidence currently uh -huh. that consciousness exists outside of the brain? I think there is evidence, yeah. Uh, I think there's definitely evidence for it. Uh, when evidence for various positions. And I think it's not really well considered by, you know, the mainstream uh, uh, kind of inherently reductive materialist kind of mainstream research in the field of neuroscience and unconsciousness and all the rest of it. But I think there's definitely evidence out there for transcerebral consciousness, if you like. Uh, whether I myself actually believe it, I try to be agnostic. Sure, but uh, I, I think uh, I'm—I would say that uh, I think materialist worldview doesn't fit all the data. I don't think any of—I don't think we have a good theory of consciousness, really, actually. No. But uh, I think you know, I'd, I'd beg people to be more open-minded, uh, uh, and, and I think there is a lot of evidence coming from. Things like our body experiences, near-death experiences, but also from parapsychological research with uh, uh, precognition, telepathy, and clairvoyance as well, for instance, of which there is a lot of uh, good experimental evidence. I think I would imagine people might push back on that a bit and say, okay, no one's discounting that there are swathes of maybe statistically significant pieces of data and mm -hmm. you can corroborate all those together. Um, but we'll put a placeholder in this as mm. we understand that our current, you know, conception of consciousness, our understanding of consciousness is vastly incomplete. We're in the foothills of a mountain. We do not know how big it is. Yeah. But these represent epiphenomena of currently unexplained material happenings mm -hmm. in the brain. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I think that's a, I don't know if that's a reasonable characterization of maybe some of the, the resistance that you would get, but I suppose, what would you say to that charge? Would you say that's fair? fair enough or what what are your thoughts when you hear, I'm, I'm sure you hear some version of that a lot well i mean there's problems with kind of epiphenomenalism anyway but um i mean which kind of it, it kind of assumes that kind of consciousness is just a weird byproduct of, of yeah. having a brain right but uh the uh, it's not I a mean, super compelling argument no. it's like it's so <laughs> fucking mental and, you know it's like if you were designing a machine you know i don't want to design my room but with with a brain, because it's like, I'd have suffer. I don't want to clean your floor and I clean the fucking floor. Yeah, you know, right. it's, it's very it's Black Mirror, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, why, would you, why would consciousness need to come along for the ride? 
Absolutely, and uh, I oh, mean, it's, it's got Florida all, as it is. It's all it's got it's all kinds of problems with that. You know, where does conscious when does consciousness start? Then I mean, how how complex does the system have to be? If it's an emergent phenomena, for instance, you know, there's problems with all theories of consciousness, and uh, but I think the data would suggest that. We, we we can't be 100% certain that it's all brain-based, right? I'm not necessarily saying we need to be dualists and think, you know, mind and body are different, but that the, there is, seems to be a lot of phenomena which which would seem to suggest that the no, consciousness isn't necessarily just created by the brain, you know, that uh, uh, it would perhaps look more like a kind of filter model whereby consciousness is something that the brain is is highly attuned to. Uh, but okay. it, it doesn't necessarily make it, and I'm not saying there's just good the radio trans. It's the picking up a signal, ostensibly yeah. that crude metaphor, but that's really what you're getting absolutely. On. It's a reducing yeah. valve for a yeah something which is more yeah perni- pernicious, you know, perennial, well, perennial, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and pernicious, yeah, all the pieces. <laughs> it just doesn't go away, yeah, most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I would t- I would keep an open mind about that. I mean, those kind of theories, you know, the filter yeah. theories, aren't well explained either. I mean, I think. I think the materialist reductionist view of consciousness uh, has the most explanatory power currently, sure. right? It explains most of the phenomena, but there's a lot of phenomena. It just kind of like, it just has to just ignore too because it doesn't fit in with the theory. So consequently, you know, subjects like parapsychology become very marginalized, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, it, it it throws up a lot of question marks about the current paradigm on, on the nature of brain and consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, historically anomalies are often the, the features which advance a science, you sure. know, or advance a theory. It's like theories are kind of incomplete uh, and shown to be incomplete if you have an anomaly that doesn't fit with the theory. And um, I think the repudiation of anomalies is wrong. The rejection of anomalies mm-hmm. is fine because you can use all, um, you, you just can't get anywhere and you can still get stuff off the ground in an applied way and get the map closer to the territory whilst rejecting some you know that's just statistics 101 but you reject the farthest farthest outliers but i do agree that those should then not be totally repudiated they should be siphoned off and studied in an in a sort of augmented way i don't know is that where you maybe feel that the scope how this world of parapsychology could fit in it doesn't necessarily mean that people need to accept but it just means they can't repudiate i think that's yeah, no, I don't think I'm not asking anybody to necessarily accept it, but um, it's become very marginalised, and it it means that the science of uh, in parapsychology is 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 done by a very small team of dedicated researchers who scrabble about for little bits of funding. You know, if we kind of just said, okay, let's just have uh, uh, divert some serious a- attention and funding to this area of research, we you know we might kind of get some answers a bit quicker. And what would you, on that issue of funding, I've sort of asked... I'm not just asking for funding <laughs> yeah. it, but well, hey, if there anybody's listening... Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've had, I've had um, we've talked, talked about this off mic, I've, you know, spoken to a few people about that. Um, uh, Are you going to hook me up? Well, I will try, we'll try. <laughs> I'll, I'll speak. There's, I know that there's a currently in my sister's house I was talking about, she's afraid of that. There is a ghost in the house, so if that wants to just <laughs> send you some cryptocurrency, that's yeah, fine. Brilliant. Um, but... Uh, if you could just rock up to the ethics, you know, the IRB or the ethics board and uh-huh. all the various administrators in the university we're in now, and by some uh, dent of magic, whatever you were going to ask to research was going to get uh-huh. full, you know, academic and financial support, what would you research? Uh, I'm kind of doing it anyway. Lucky I man. mean, I've got uh, currently looking at 
the nature of um, DMT experiences in terms of like their uh, there's ostensible evidence for otherworldly experiences, right? Be that transcendence of time and space or encounters with discarnate entities. So I'm actually doing that project currently mm. as a field research project. Oh wow. Uh, Ethics isn't isn't the problem. I mean, time and funding is, sure. is but I also have uh, some funding and a little bit of time. So, mm-hmm. currently doing a field research project with DMT, uh, experimentally looking at telepathy, precognition, uh, shared visionary experiences, and insight, uh, uh, along with in 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 relationship to entity encounters. Good on you. That's a nice. Must be a nice feeling. To be asked the question, you know, what would you ideally like to be researching and then to be not much distance between what you're doing yeah. in your day to day. Um, to just circle back because we're also we've we've discussed that, you know, I have a I'm heading off later on. So we're going to truncate this a bit today, but uh-huh. I live in the same city. I'm sure we'd love to yeah, catch sure, up sure. in the future and. Maybe have sort of slightly shorter Smoke podcast. Smoke some DMT here. and carry on with the conversation. <laughs> yeah, 15 minutes. We'll just sit for each other. It'll be a half hour podcast and then we'll talk about it for five years. <laughs> Deep integration. Uh, um, but to just wanted to circle back on that, the non-echoic chamber one, because that was a very interesting finding and 10% of people reporting something like that absolutely cannot be ignored. And I would imagine there's a propensity for people to ignore it. Mm-hmm. I found that very interesting. Maybe in the more sort of parochial findings to come back to earth a little bit more and um, what were people re- what were the other 90 percent sort of reporting what were your outcomes and, and what has that peaked in your mind how can this can be useful going forward you know as a sort of initial piece of research yeah i mean so the the primary kind of aim of it was i mean it's, it's exploratory we, we were testing a few hypotheses about the nature of these variables you know absorption and depth of old states and stuff see how they're related but uh, we were looking to see how it maps to a psychedelic experience because there's a lot of focus on the minute of psychedelic experiences so we were looking at the nature of non-drug psychedelic like experiences and so we're repeating this with uh, flotation tanks with with holotropic breath work we're going to do vr have to look at hypnosis as well because there's you know there's bits of scattered research on these other old states particularly from the 60s but there's no kind of integrated research which is using the same measures, which you know are becoming quite standard with psychedelics. So we're saying, okay, how psychedelic is two hours in an anechoic dark room? And it turns out, well, it's uh, like a, a, a small to a medium dose of LSD or psilocybin, depending on what feature you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And the, and I would imagine that the the profile of the person, you know, from the things we've discussed, you yeah. could, you could probably get to mid to at the higher level right oh yeah yeah, yeah some of the elements of it were, were kind of quite high level uh yeah. the complex uh imagery was quite high so visual hallucinations yeah. were yeah, on paper i mean i'm not saying like being two hours in an anechoic dark room is like two tripping balls trip, yeah yeah but there are that you will tick the box that to that same extent of mm-hmm. having had some visual hallucinations mm-hmm. but maybe not the whole time sometimes sometimes maybe aiming at that is not necessarily a bad thing because uh, and I know I'm thinking of uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the, the, the author, was one of those people, very interested in psychedelics and then has now moved much, much more into Vipassana meditation and is sort of, not derisory, but like seems to look over his shoulder and, and mm-hmm. sees this hunt for the pyrotechnics, which yeah. I've encountered. And I yeah, think yeah. if you're able to deliver something which is, you know, imminently titratable, like the breath, or mm-hmm. can I get out of the dark room now? Or, mm-hmm. you know, hypnosis, you're back in the room. 
then you're going to maybe cut away some of that fat of people just seeking that next, yeah, ex, you know, peak experience almost but without ever addressing some addictive aspects of our personality. So the yeah. parsimony of these things actually, as opposed to making them less attractive in a way I, from a therapeutic perspective, it almost makes them more attractive to me. Not because not yeah. I'm afraid of the full fantagosmoria or whatever, but mm-hmm. I like that it's more focused in that. I don't know what your thoughts are in the, the sort of parsimony and leanness of these experiences. Because it's not like tripping balls, I'm sure, but... No, not always. I mean, some people can be, you know, uh, often people are really surprised, you know. For instance, I know a lot of people have taken a lot of psychedelics and they do some breath work, not expecting much, right. and then they get their socks knocked off, you know. So that... They, sometimes it can be very psychedelic, but yeah, they're usually not as intense uh, or or as psychedelic, but they can be equally profound. And I think there is a, a use and a parsimony in having these non-psychedelic or non-drug-induced psychedelic yeah. experiences. Um, and they also give us, you know, a better sense of understanding of consciousness and the psychedelic experience because... It shows you that, um, you know, everything is psychedelic. You know, yeah. uh, our reality, our waking consciousness, our normal consensus everyday uh, experience is is uh, hallucinatory in its own right, right? It's just a uh, hallucinatory experience we're, we're very used to because we, we spend most of our time in it, right? But it's like uh, your brain is, is uh, or well, I'm not saying necessarily your brain, but you, you know, you, you, the nature of your experience <laughs> is at least partially constructed, right? It's trying to keep the door yeah, open yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll it down onto the brain. I'm not trying to be too reductionistic, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, your brain is involved in all experience sure. for sure. The radio. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, is it a radio or is it, it or is it the the radio station? You know, is it or is it the studio? Mm-hmm. This is the question, but um, for sure, it's involved. Mm-hmm. And you know, everything from air to uh, photons are, are psychedelic, right? You mm-hmm. know, uh, you breathing and light and darkness. The the, um, the holotropic breath work, and in a way, maybe that was a blessing or one of the silver linings of the whole clampdown from the seventies, because a lot of this work probably would be more nascent mm-hmm. if it weren't for the, you know, people like Stan Groff had to mm-hmm. focus a lot more on non psychedelic compound, you no, know, just achieving these same altered states through purely endogenous, well. Yeah. non-psychedelic compounds i suppose yeah. uh yeah so i think that's we are where we are um and you've mentioned about your your field work if people are interested in consuming a little bit more of the two strands i would imagine your your research papers and your more speculative not speculative but your <laughs> more how would i say your more experiential work uh-huh where would you direct people to look at both of those things? Or is there any specific talks? Because you've done quite a few, but are there any that sort of are good zeitgeist for people? Uh, so, yes, usually like the more experiential stuff is somewhat separate from the the research stuff, but they, there is a big overlap. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd say my book is a good kind of fusion of the two. Uh, yeah. Other Worlds, uh, I've got a few books out there, but that's yeah. one, is a kind of a collection of like both kind of experiential essays and a lot of kind of scientific research as well. So it's uh-huh. like... Uh, yeah, it's a mixed bag, but I can't think to any one particular podcast or video you'd have to rummage around. But the book of the worlds is, yeah, that's well, my best fusion. Maybe what I'll do is I'll sort of have a look through all your stuff, bundle through a few packs, check with you, and then like yeah, link yeah, it in sure. the blog post so people can. And I, my my advice is always like Stephen Fry says, when you get when you buy a book on Amazon, you know the algorithms just nudge you more into your bubble, and it's like if other people like you bought this, and he thinks they should <laughs> have like. 
you you bought you know this you know you should buy this and it's just the op- totally opposite yeah, yeah, yeah it's okay, just the good. antithetical one yeah so I, i'd say if you're a hyper materialist click on this link yeah, and, yeah. and vice versa if there are people who feel um you know that there's the science is not for them then maybe there's stuff that they can look and see how i just i just want people to talk to the no, other side good. yeah i think yeah i love that idea of algorithms yeah. making us more kind of stuck in our own kind of reality bubbles i yeah. like that anti-rhythm let's call it um <laughs> uh, well david look i i have to shoot yeah on no worries it's really good talking to you it was fantastic and um, can we please do it again sometime yeah can, sure we can give it a bit more time and i'll oh last thing i've asked this of previous guests if there was one area that you wished the, the person, the average podcast listener, understood a little bit more of a working knowledge that would fit mm-hmm. into like a two thousand word blog, something like that. What area do you find needs a bit of um, brushing up on the general public? Uh, that's a good around psychedelics. Around yeah. psychedelics, okay, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I kind of naturally assume I know everything. It's hard to kind of put yourself in in everyone else's position. I do get a lot of questions about where can I find psychedelics? Usually that's a big question. Yeah. It's like, can I score some from you? Or uh, uh, there's a lot of um, curiosity and misinformation about microdosing, I would say. And and then there's a lot of kind of like uh, these internet memes like around DMT pineal, uh, pineal DMT, sorry, which is like uh, hasn't kept up with the research. You know, it's taken as a given that that's kind of, uh, DMT is made in the pineal gland, but it's still a kind of open debate at the minute. So maybe just like a DMT 101, I think yeah, would be good for be people. Useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would that yeah, work? Okay, yeah. well, I'll, I'll get on to that. I have a backlog of a few other ones to do. All right, fantastic. Needlessly making myself stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> it helps me learn because I don't fantastic. know my arse from my elbows just as much as anybody else. But that's, <laughs> we have to all be humble and in, uh, in the sight of whatever it is whether yeah. it's the brain whether and whether you're in the studio or, the, or you're listening to the radio or you're broadcasting from outer space it doesn't really matter <laughs> just a smaller piece of a bigger puzzle and um, thanks very much for your time david and we'll definitely do this again thank you so much brilliant thanks Niall. you know where i am <laughs> cheers well i hope you enjoyed that chat As always, if you like it, share it. Also, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. It goes a long way to getting it in front of more people. Also, you can subscribe to the Twitter feed. My handle is at MindManifestPod. In the next coming weeks, we'll be releasing some audio from recent lectures, as well as blogs about psilocybin, SSRI's interaction with psychedelics, and an overview of both neuroscience and DMT, as well as some upcoming guests' interviews. If there was someone that you would like to be interviewed, please contact us at hello at mindmanifestpodcast.com. Every email is read and responded to. So until next time, take care.